I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. When I was a, a younger Christian uh, in college, a friend's life hung in the balance after a fatal car accident. And I immediately decided to, to fast for this friend. And I didn't make a big deal about it because uh, what was what Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you fast, uh, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. So I, I did that part of it correctly. But what I was hoping in my heart was that God would see what I was doing and that I could somehow manipulate God into saving my friend. Sadly, it, it didn't work. I thought uh, of that time in my life when I read this passage and started studying uh, this week about what in the world would I say about this episode in the life of Jesus and his disciples where these people come to Jesus and said, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? What in the world would I say about fasting? That doesn't sound very exciting at all. But as I read this, uh, read some material on this passage, I realized that it's very, very rich in showing us the difference between religion, and I'm using that word in a negative way, uh, the difference between religion and the gospel. Now, before we begin uh, looking at that issue, we need to back up and say, what is fasting? Uh, we live in a wonderful place where there's all kinds of restaurants and good cooks around, and uh, fasting is really not on my top ten list of things I like to do. I like to eat, and I can testify to that fact uh, when I step on the scales here recently after moving down here with all these wonderful restaurants and cooks. But fasting simply means, as most people know, going without food and or drink for a period of time. It's not unique to Christianity. Fasting is something that uh, lots of religions do. Uh, you can go on many websites, and, and it's something that uh, health, uh, health gurus will tell you that you should do. There are all kinds of healthy fasts that you can get involved in. In the Old Testament, there were certain annual fasts, such as the Day of Atonement, and there were some other uh, occasional fasts that came along in the calendar. And then there were other times when people fasted as individuals and corporately. They declared a fast. In the New Testament, uh, we read a few weeks ago about Jesus fasting for 40 days in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. 
And we read in, in Acts about the leaders in the church fasting when they were choosing uh, uh, elders or setting Paul and Barnabas off on their missionary journey. Paul twice refers to his fasting. So fasting is something that went on in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Fasting gave expression to grief and penitence. It was a way by which men might humble themselves. Fasting was often directed towards securing the guidance and help of God. For example, when choosing a ruling elder or setting apart someone for the mission, they wanted God's guidance. But the ultimate goal of fasting should not be to try to manipulate God, but the ultimate goal is God himself, to know more of God to uh, be in closer relationship with God, to get his guidance and his direction and his help in time of need. These are the reasons that people fasted in the Bible, and today for that matter. Now we have three different groups of people in this passage before us this morning. We've got John's disciples, we've got the Pharisees, and then we've got Jesus' disciples. And each has a different practice when it comes to fasting and other spiritual disciplines as well. I want to look at all three this morning and really think about why do we do the things that we do, the religious things that we do. Not just fasting, whether we fast or not, uh, not just simply fasting, but also going to church, reading our Bibles, praying, uh, sharing our faith, all these things we would consider spiritual disciplines. How do we go about doing those in the right way? And what can we learn from these three different groups about how and why we go about doing these uh, spiritual disciplines? Now, why were the disciples of John the Baptist fasting? Let's look at th this group first. Uh, John the Baptist, of course, was the forerunner of Jesus. We read about him a few weeks ago. And he was preparing the way for the Lord. And how did he do that? Well, he went about preaching repentance. He said, look, the Messiah is coming and everyone should repent in order to be prepared for his coming. And that's what John and his disciples were all about. They were humbling themselves, uh, repenting of their sins, and fasting was a way that they demonstrated that. Humbling themselves before God, turning from sin, seeking God, asking God to to reveal himself in the person of the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to, to come and, and, and come to earth as promised. And so John the Baptist was preparing the way for that. Now we read in Luke 7 that John the Baptist, even though we have that episode where John baptizes Jesus and John rightly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but still in Luke 7 there's some uh, sense of unsureness about the person of Jesus because John hears about all the things that Jesus was doing, healing and preaching and teaching. And John sent a couple of his disciples to Jesus and said, I want you to go to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And these two guys, John the Baptist's disciples, go to Jesus and say, are you the one? Who is to come? Are you the Messiah, in other words, or shall we look for another? So they were unsure of who Jesus was. They were seeking the Lord. They were continuing to fast because they wanted God. They wanted to be God. They, they wanted to, uh, for God to, to be there 
in the flesh. They wanted the Messiah to come. They were seeking, but they had not found yet. Now, there may be some people here today who are like John's disciples. You want Christ. Uh, You're coming to church. You're engaged in maybe even reading your Bible regularly and praying. But you're not sure you actually have the Lord in your life. We'll think about that in a moment. If that's you today, hold that thought. Now let's look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees were in the practice of fasting, it tells us here. Why were they fasting? They were not fasting like the Pharisees were fasting. They had a different motivation for their fast than Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. They, it tells us in other parts of the New Testament, they were fasting because of selfish reasons. They wanted people to see how holy they were. In Matthew 6, Jesus gives these instructions. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, that's the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders of the day, where they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And their reward was for everybody to say, oh, look how holy those guys are. I wish I was that holy. They really are super spiritual people. And Jesus is saying, well, that's the reward they're looking for, and that's all they're getting. They were self-righteous. They thought they were better than everybody else. And Jesus tells a parable about one of the Pharisees when he comes to the temple to pray. He says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you'll remember from last week that we said tax collectors were traitors. They were working for the Roman government who was against the, the government of Israel. They were raising taxes for this occupying force and often they were stealing money from the people. So tax collectors were seen as the lowest of the low. And Jesus was hanging out with these people. But this Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, probably looking at the tax collector thinking of him right there, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you see, these Pharisees were exalting themselves. They were fasting to be seen by other people. They were wanting their self-righteousness confirmed by the crowds. They were in it just for themselves. They weren't seeking God at all. They were just playing a religious game. And that's, when I'm, that's the bad religion that I speak of. And, you know, we like to look at the Pharisees and, and say, oh, I don't ever want to be a hypocrite like that. But really, we all have a Pharisee in us. It really is our default mode. You know, when you buy a computer, there's the default mode. That's the factory settings, the way it comes to you in the package. And uh, it's easy when you get something fouled up in your computer, you can go back to the default mode and everything gets reset to where it is. We have a, a reset that we may not even hit it, but our spirits tend to go that way. 
a default mode, and it is Phariseeism. We like to fall into religion because religion is safe. Religion helps us control God. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, God, if I do this, this, and this, then you owe me. If I fast twice a week, if I give my tithes, if I am real holy, then God, you owe me something. Uh, you owe me blessing. You owe me a good life. Whatever it might be. And how easy it is for us to fall into that attitude. You know, we might even look at this hurricane and say, God, what are you doing? You know, I have done this and this. I'm a good person. And here another hurricane is coming. Or we may look back in the past and see the difficult times we've gone through and say, God, what did I do to deserve this? You know, I've been a good person. I do this. I do that. Well, that's just religion. That's just religion like the Pharisees had. That we somehow, through our efforts and through our good deeds, merit God's favor and God's blessing. That not only do we merit it, but we deserve it. The Pharisees had that kind of attitude, and that's why they were fasting. Now let's look finally at Jesus' disciples. They did not fast at this point. Why did they not fast? Why did they refrain with Jesus there? Two reasons. First, he's the bridegroom. And then the second reason is that the gospel is new wine. And you can obviously see the pattern there in the, in the scripture, uh, the the paragraphs that follow this little episode. First, Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, for those of you who are kind of in John the Baptist disciples' shoes, what an encouraging word this is, that Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, Jesus tells a story, or gives us a little picture here, of, of a marriage feast. Uh, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, he is given a picture of a wedding. And a wedding in those days wasn't just a Saturday afternoon or evening affair like we have in our day and time. No, weddings in those days lasted a full week. And they pulled out all the stops, all the food, all the wine, and invited all their friends. And uh, you got dressed up and you went and joined the feast. And it could last for a long time. And so while you're there... You were in party mode. You weren't in mourning or sad mode. You were there and excited for the couple and celebrating with them. John the Baptist's disciples were looking for the Messiah. They were longing for him to, to come and for God to, to rend the heavens and come down, as Isaiah 64 says. But what Jesus is saying is, look, Jesus is here. The bridegroom is here. Now, that word bridegroom can mean, I mean, he can be just simply giving us an illustration. But we know better than that because when you read passages like Isaiah 54 that we looked at earlier, or Jeremiah 2, or the book of Hosea, or Ezekiel 17, all throughout the Old Testament, God describes himself as a husband, as the bridegroom. So what, what Jesus is saying here is not just... Here's a, here's a metaphor for me being here, but no, the bridegroom, the bridegroom is here. The one that John the Baptist's disciples is looking for has arrived. God himself has taken on human flesh, the one who promised 
to be your husband, the one who, who promised to be your redeemer. He is on the scene and there's no reason to be mourning. There's no reason to be looking for him. He's already here, so come to the wedding feast. Come and be, have the assurance that you are part of the party. So Jesus' disciples did not fast because the bridegroom is here. Now, it doesn't mean that as Christians we don't fast because Jesus here gives us a little veiled reference that one day he will not be physically present with him any longer. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. And, of course, Matthew 6 that we read earlier encourages us, when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees. Keep it to yourself and... God who sees in secret, he will bless you. He will reward you. So when we come to looking at this passage and thinking about Jesus as the bridegroom, we can rejoice that the bridegroom has come and we've been invited into the feast. And that gives assurance. You know, there is a parable in the New Testament that Jesus told about the the virgins who were not prepared and they did not... Uh, have their lamps trimmed and burning so when the bridegroom came, the the wedding processional came to to gather the bride and go to the wedding feast, they were off buying oil. And uh, when when they came to the door, the door had already been shut and they could not get into the feast. Well, what Jesus is saying is the, the feast is on. I have come and you're invited in. And because I'm here, And because I'm the bridegroom, I'm inviting you in and I'm giving you permission to be a part. So if you're like one of John the Baptist's disciples who's not sure whether you're in or not, Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. Come. Come and join the wedding feast. It doesn't cost anything to take part in the feast. As he said in Isaiah, come, buy without money. Come, be a part. I will not cast you out. So that's wonderful assurance for John's disciples that Jesus is giving here. The bridegroom has come, the feast is on, and you're welcome to be a part of that. Jesus also talks about the fact that the gospel is new wine. New wine uh, in those days was put into containers of animal skins for fermentation. And, of course, in that process, wine emits gases, and these animal skins would expand as it ferment. And if you put new wine into old wine skins because they had already expanded, they would be weak, and they would explode, and you'd spill all of your wine. So old skins were useless. But the general gist of what Jesus is saying here is this. Jesus' coming brings something so powerful and new that it cannot be contained in existing forms. So the Pharisees had their religious forms. They did this, that, and the other. They had everything down to a science. They could tell you how many steps away from the front door of your house that, that you, could, you were allowed to take on the Sabbath day. I think it's something like 400 yards. And they had measured it out, knew the radius to try to stay within the letter of the law. See, they were trying to manipulate and control God. If I can keep the law... So they had to dumb down the law so they could actually make it keepable. Then God owes me. And Jesus is saying, when the gospel comes, it blows all your categories away. You can't control God. 
You can't manipulate God. You can't just set him into your set forms and say, if I do this, this, and this, then I'm a Christian and I'm good and I'm in. Jesus saying the gospel blows that away. What does this mean practically? See, there's a, there's a change in religious practices, in our spiritual disciplines. You'll see there throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always bumping up against all the religious duties the Pharisees thought were required by people. Jesus' disciples eat without washed hands, and the Pharisees criticize them. Uh, why did they do that? Because Jesus now is their cleanliness and holiness before God. They don't have to wash their hands with water in order to be clean before God. Jesus is that clean, cleanliness. Jesus' disciples don't make sacrifices at the temple. Why? Because Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. There's no reason to go through all the Old Testament laws and sacrifices. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus goes to the Gentiles who are unwashed, they're unclean, not just the Jews, because Jesus' grace extends to all people. See, he's blowing away the religious practices of the day. There's regulations about Sabbath, which is in the next section that we'll be looking at next week. And he blows that away as well because he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one that grants eternal rest in our souls. So, in general, there's a shift, Tim Keller says, from the complexity of so many regulations and external rules and minutia toward a much simpler practice. Why? Because religion is filled, religion in the bad sense, is filled with rules and traditions because observers are not sure where they stand with the deity. Multiplication of rules and duties grow out of our insecurity and uncertainty. Jesus in grace blows away the morbid, rigid, externalistic forms religious life had taken. Now, does that mean we don't engage in spiritual disciplines? That because of Jesus, we don't have to do all these things anymore? No. But with the gospel of Christ, we do them for a completely different reason. We're not trying to manipulate God. We're not trying to make ourselves look holy so everybody will affirm that we are righteous and that we deserve God's favor. No, with the gospel, uh, with the gospel of Christ, the good news that he's died for sin and, and paid for us and he's given us admission to the feast forever, we have joy. There's, there's rejoicing in our hearts. We know God loves us. We get involved in spiritual disciplines because we're excited about coming to God and being a part in a relationship with Him. We, we uh, come and do those spiritual disciplines with willingness. We realize how, compared to what He's done for us, how little He asks of us. I mean, He came from heaven. He laid aside His glory he laid aside his right to be worshipped and, and, and honored. And he suffered his entire life. He was born in a food trough. The King of kings and Lord of lords. He lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, he grew up in Nazareth. You know, can anything good come from Nazareth? One of the disciples said when they were introduced to Jesus. Uh, he grew up poor. Rejected by men. And when he started his public ministry, the suffering got worse till people sought to kill him, eventually doing so unjustly. Because never did one person ever deserve not to die. Because he was perfect in every way. But he willingly 
took our sin upon himself and bore the wrath of God on the cross. So we know he's done so much for us. Is it too much for us for him to ask us to come and worship him one day a week? Is it too much to ask for him of him of us to go and tell other people about this good news of salvation that we're enjoying? Don't we want to read his word that he's given to us and preserved throughout the generations so that we can know who he is and what he desires for us? We understand that the duties that God calls us to are ways of knowing him better and growing into his likeness. You see, we we read our Bible, we pray, not because we're trying to earn his favor, but because we've got our favor and we can know him better. We come to church to come before him and learn about him and speak back to him and say, Lord, we love you and we lift you up. We know you're awesome and great. See, if we're one of those Pharisees today, we need to remind ourselves why we do the things we do. And a good measure for our spiritual disciplines is to think about the Lord's Prayer. When those uh, people fasted, were they seeking God? And in the Lord's Prayer, there's three petitions that started off. Lord, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. Are we fasting because we want God's name to be made more holy and to be revered? Are we fasting to see God's kingdom come and his will be done? Do we read the Bible to see God's name be revered, his kingdom come and his will be done? Do we come to church to see uh, God's name be revered and his kingdom come and his will be done? It doesn't mean that we can't fast and pray for specific things, salvation of someone, for someone to live. The right motivation for me in my friend's death would be to fast and say, Lord, I want him to know you and I want your kingdom to come in his life. I want him to to see you as holy. and But most of all, your will be done and your kingdom come for him. And I'm sure that it did. Maybe God did answer my prayers and my fasting in the right way. But Jesus comes into our lives and he shakes up all of our categories because he's the bridegroom and he wants you to join the feast. All we have to do is call out to him. And he will answer and he will not cast us out. What a great uh, God we serve. We just look to what he has done, not to what we have done. That's what saves us. And that's what causes us to grow, what Christ has done. And he's invited us into that relationship. I hope that you know Jesus, more about him today, and that you will center your life upon him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would help us to understand how we can know you better and love you more and delight in you. Lord, we delight in so many other things besides you. But help us, Lord, to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.